Welcome to Bench Boost, presented by Ivy Ignite, Inorganic Ventures Virtual ICP Academy. I'm your host, Mike Booth, Technical Director here at Inorganic Ventures. At Ivy, we're passionate about all things ICP, sample prep, and analytical science. And we're here to share our passion and expertise with you. Each week, we'll bring you the latest insights, tips, and tricks from the brilliant minds of our laboratory team. Get ready to experience chemistry in a new light. Hello, everyone. Today, I'm joined by one of our quality control technicians, Shaylin Pressgraves, one of our production managers, Thomas Kozakowski, and our chief technical officer, Dr. Brian Alexander. We're going to continue with a deep dive into one of our most popular resources, our ICP operations guide written by our founder, Dr. Paul Gaines. Make sure to tune in each week for more insights from this guide. Today, our team will be discussing Chapter 8 on spectral interferences. If you would like to follow along with us, you can view the ICP operations guide on our website at www.inorganicventures.com. All right, so Paul broke this chapter down into ICP OES and ICP mass spec. So let's start with ICP OES. Thomas, you've recently given a presentation on ICP OES interferences. What would you say would be some of the most commonly found interferences? Yeah, with the OES, we get a lot of spectral overlap issues. So that's where some of the peaks are so close to each other, they kind of overlap and you can't tell one from apart from the other. So sometimes you'll see this with arsenic cadmium on 228. That's a common one that a lot of people mess up because arsenic is so much smaller than the cadmium peak. You kind of get them confused. Yeah, I know um, it's just shoulder interferences can be an issue as well, right? Yeah, so that a common one I see on that is a sodium. I think it's 588 shows up on an argon line. So the argon is very, very broad peak, and the sodium shows up just fine, especially in axial mode. Mm-hmm. It's actually a very sensitive peak, but it shows up on a shoulder, so the background for it is not even flat. Yeah. I know you mentioned sort of the background points. We do a lot of trace metal impurity testing and we have, you know, setting those background points are, you know, really important. Shaylin, what have you found is some, some good, you know, sort of tips and tricks for setting good background points? Setting the stop and start markers can help with background interference and centering your peaks can help with background interferences too. So sometimes would you recommend, um, if you have an interference on one side, maybe setting a background point just on like the left side or the right side, as opposed to using left and right uh, peak backgrounds. Right. Got you. Yeah. And setting those background points can, can help out quite a bit as well. Yeah. Especially with, with RSDs too. It helps a lot with RSDs too. Perfect. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious. You guys have a lot more experience with setting these background corrections for an OES analysis and application. Does it matter if you're using a peak height versus an integration under the curve approach as far as uh, calculating the actual concentration? Does that play into how you set your background at all? So I've never really seen with ICP on our softwares that it does integration under the curve. I've only really seen that with IC where you're doing chromatographs and it's time-based. So the ICP signal usually is um, just peak intensity as opposed to an area. And if you have something on the shoulder, let's say uh, uh, your background correction is is really kind of an odd-looking background, let's say it has some type of slope to it, is setting that peak height really a challenge, or is the software going to help you with that? I get worried about that for sure, because I wonder if, if the background is raising, is it actually more elevated to than where it should be? That We see this with axial mode, and sometimes I like to prove it to myself with a standard edition. Yeah, that's why we use standards, so... We can use the standard to test it against it mm-hmm. because the standard standard will raise with the sample. Okay, good. 
Awesome. And blanks too. Use blanks. Yeah, yeah, blanks and method standard editions is always a great great tool in your in your toolkit to use when dealing with tr- with tough samples. I think another interference that people will have to worry about is if they have high total dissolved solids in their sample or in their standards and it's just not present in one or the other. Thomas, I'll throw it over to you. What happens when you have a lot of total dissolved solids in your sample? Yeah, when that happens, usually the if we're looking at trace elements on something else, it really depresses the signal. So it brings it down quite a bit. So we would normally say try to use an internal standard, but sometimes that correction factor is like almost two really depends on how high the TDS is. If you're running high salts, high carbon, uh, it really wreaks havoc on those. Do you guys really look at the spectra every time you're using an OES, particularly if you have a high total dissolved solid sample, or are there applications where you just don't even go to the spectra at all? I look at the spectra every time. Yeah, we definitely look at the spectra every time. Good. Yeah, there is no reason not to look at the spectra. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes the peaks aren't centered. Who knows? You might have instrument drift that day. One time we were getting shifting peaks within the analysis and it was because the optical system wasn't being chilled properly. So yeah, it was all over the place and the software could can't handle it when the sh- peak shifts a bunch of times. And you never it was a, it was a hosed run. <laughs> <laughs> and you never would have noticed if you hadn't gone in and actually looked at the spectra itself, right? Right. The only thing that was a clue was the RSDs were a little weird. Speaking of peak shifting, I know that is something that we've seen when measuring our like seven lithium or six lithium isotopic products. You'll see peak shifting on the OES for that as well. Yeah, I just that's something that Mike is really fascinating for me because for many years I didn't think that isotopic uh, abundances would really have effect on the peaks if you're using an OES application. And then several years ago, one of our customers actually reached out and sent in a, a fantastic research paper where you could use OES for uranium isotopic ratio measurements. And I was fascinated by that for because for a long time, I had just thought with an optical system, the isotopic abundances would not be significant enough to actually generate some type of peak shifting. But it appears that the instrumentation is well-developed enough now, and people have become skilled enough that you could actually use an OES for some type of isotopic ratio measurement. Yeah. Yeah, and I believe that. I think Spectra has done a little bit of work with this with a lithium company as well, where you can use OES for that, whereas traditionally you'd have to rely on mass spec to dis- distinguish the six and the seven lithium. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very cool. It's very interesting to see the Spectra-wise when, you know, like I said, we look at the Spectra each time, so it's interesting to see natural abundance lithium versus just a six lithium standard, seeing the peak just shift back and forth. It's not much, but it is significant. Yeah. So let's talk about some good ways to correct for interferences on ICP OES. We have recently rebuilt the method that we use to test our custom products, and we implemented a really good interference table. And Thomas, I'll throw this over to you because you designed the interference table. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so you can create interference tables based on anything you want to run. So we, we developed one where we wanted to go up to about 100 ppm of every element. So we had our sets of standards. We wanted to see what an element would do to other wavelengths. So we were in single element standards for everything, all the way down from 1 BPM to about 80, to figure out what what does 80 do to a different element. So we saw its signal response based on the standard, and we built a table so that, you know, if we expect to see something, what does that do on a different element? And then we can do a subtraction on that and figure out um, really what to expect to see, because it'll give us, you know, 
failures when they really aren't. Yeah, I think it's always important that the instrument is only as smart as what the information you feed it. So it's going to give you a response back. It just knows that, hey, I had a signal at this point. It doesn't know that that's really not the element that it's supposed to be. It's just an interference. Shayla, you spoke about the method of standard additions earlier. We have a really good course on Ivy Ignite. It goes over the how to do the method of standard additions. But when you're in the lab in QC, when do you pull out this method and use it? What types of samples do you run into? So I use it in the lab when I have high chloride in a blend with multiple elements at different concentrations. For example, there's a lot of issues with potassium when there's high chloride at like 15,000 ppm and high sodium at like 10,000 ppm. So what I do to combat that is I grab our 10 ppm potassium stock and I will spike in 6 molar HCl to uh, make it 15,000 ppm of, of chloride in that uh, stock. And um, I'll test my sample against it to combat for that chloride. So you, it sounds like you essentially create an artificial sample where you are really matrix matching as closely as you can so that you have a better understanding of how the machine will respond, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so if you want to learn more about the method of standard editions, definitely check out Ivy Ignite or in the ICP operations guide and the trace analysis guide on interorganicventures.com. There's a lot of resources that you can learn about that. I think another good way to overcome interferences is by using an ionization buffer. And Brian, I'm going to toss this one over to you because this is a question we get quite frequently. What is an ionization buffer? Well, Mike, that's a fantastic question. And I have to admit that it's been quite some years since I've actually worked with this particular uh, approach. As I recall, and you guys will correct me if I'm wrong, what you really want to do is to add an easily ionizable element to your matrix. And what you end up doing in that approach is that when that particular sample hits the plasma, you end up creating a sea of electrons that really smooths out the analysis and is particularly helpful when you are trying to measure elements that easily ionize by themselves. So we're thinking of the alkaline earths and the alkaline elements. And so really these ionization buffers tend to be something like cesium, rubidium, an alkaline element that you aren't caring about as far as the analysis is concerned, but you add it to everything, including your sample standards and blanks, and it really does help these easily ionizable elements that you do want to measure give you better results during the analysis itself. And did I mess that up or does that sound about right? No, that's about right, Brian. We typically, I've done a lot of studies on this and really it only helps three elements and it's the ones above cesium and rubidium. So we're talking about lithium, sodium, and potassium, and we're talking about axial mode. So you really don't need the ionization buffer if you're using radial mode. But when you're in axial, it helps with linearity quite a bit. And it also enhances the signal so you get more counts. So how much of this easily ionizable ionization buffer are you adding to the solution? Are there some kind of guidelines that we've observed over the years of using this that really could be helpful for some of the listeners out there? Yeah, we've stuck with 500 ppm with our old MEB check method. Of course, we've gotten rid of that just to help speed up preps and uh, the fact that we're using radial now in addition to the axial mode. But yeah, 500 worked really well. And that's 500 ppm of cesium mm -hmm. in this instance. And I guess one of the considerations is that if you're choosing an ionization buffer and you're adding it to everything, your blanks, your standards, and your samples, 
you really need to be careful in choosing one that's pretty clean, right? That's right. Yeah, our cesium is pretty clean, so that's a good choice for us. But yeah, any of them, as long as you're sourcing it with trace metal data, you, you'll have pretty good confidence in that. Great. Perfect. Well, I think that takes care of ICP OES interferences. Let's talk about some ICP mass spec interferences. So let's talk about just the different types at first. Um, Shaylin, I know that you did an IV Ignite course all about isobaric interferences. Do you want to uh, give us a little bit of detail on what an isobaric interference is? Isobaric interference is the result of equal mass isotopes of different elements that are present in the same solution. An example of that is 40 calcium and 40 argon. So I would use the mass 44 when I'm doing a TMI to get away from that argon interference because we use we use argon mm-hmm. in our instruments. Yeah, I would say 99% of them are right. I know you can do another gas and it'll definitely change your interferences, but have you had any experience with that, Brian? I've never used a different gas for generating the plasma, but when ICP was first being commercialized in the 70s and throughout the 80s, a lot of research has been developed where it really expands upon what type of other gases you could use to create a plasma. So People have used krypton, neon, helium, uh, xenon, and so plus, yeah, with combinations of some other gases as well. So you can really generate a nice, robust plasma with any of those similar elements. And the only application I've ever heard of anybody using one of these more exotic gases for generating a plasma was using xenon to uh, generate plasma for sulfur isotope measurements by mass spec. And the reason is that if you're trying to measure sulfur using the ICPMS, you're in this pretty terrible part of the mass range, 32, 34, 36. And the argon interferences, particularly on mass 36, are so significant that really they avoided all this by changing to a different gas for generating the plasma. The analyst that I spoke with who actually was doing the measurement said it worked great, but xenon is not easy to source, and it's mm-hmm. not particularly cheap. And that's another reason why argon is such a fantastic choice for generating the plasma, readily available, of significant purity, and it's not terribly expensive. So if isobarics are when two elements share the same mass, polyatomic then would be essentially, you got multiple atoms in there. Brian, why don't you walk us through what a polyatomic interference would look like? Well, I'm going to pick on the classic example that you'll find in a lot of the literature and also as provided by the instrument manufacturers, and that is the polyatomic interference of argon-40 and oxygen-16 interfering on mass-56, which is the dominant iron isotope. So unfortunately, a lot of the ICPMS software, if you want to measure iron, will automatically select isotope 56 as your isotope of choice for iron. But you've got that beautiful argon-oxygen interference that falls at essentially the same mass, and you cannot escape that because, one, your plasma uses argon, and you're running at atmospheric pressure, and so you're going to have this argon-oxide interference at mass 56. That's the classic, but you can find a polyatomic interference for pretty much any mass that you'll be interested in analyzing for. And so the key thing really is just to understand your instrument, how it behaves, and make sure that if you are measuring a particular isotope of a given element, that you've done some background work to make sure that you don't have a polyatomic affecting that mass for the given sample that you are measuring. 
And there's a ton of different polyatomics that can form, so it can get really challenging to pinpoint what the problem might actually be. Thomas, I'll kick over the next type to you, doubly charged. Yeah, these come up sometimes, especially when you're in the higher mass range, but a lot of people forget what you're looking at on mass spec is not really the mass. You're looking at the mass to charge ratio. So if something actually ionizes and you get a plus two state, it lands on the uh, mass as half that. So let's say you have 140 for cerium, that ends up landing on 70. You think it's, I guess that's geranium. So you, you see that ratio when you do a tuning to see how that how bad that interference will be for pretty much every element. Yeah, and lastly, I think the, the last sort of interference, we call it bleed over in the lab, but really it's more of a sensitivity issue. Where, you know, Shailen, you mentioned earlier, you know, the isotopic or the isobaric interference of calcium and argon on mass 40. But if you try to measure potassium on 39, you're also going to run into issues because you've got so much signal on mass 40 because of the argon, it may bleed over into mass 39 on potassium. And that's something that really, I mean, I'll throw it out to the group. I don't think there's a way, a good way to get around necessarily. Um, I use the collision cell for that. Yeah, I was going to say, possibly by lowering your counts, but you know, a good way to do that is by using collision cell. Yeah. Well, those are about all the different types of interferences, so let's touch briefly on how you would correct for them. And really, I think the biggest tip that we give people if they're running into a certain mass is really just pick a different mass. So I'll throw it out to the group. Anyone want to throw out some tips for how to select a different mass? I get frustrated with this when we get customers that call in and they say, hey, this isn't working. It's like, well, what masses are you looking at? We're only looking at the one, but you have five to choose from for this element. Why wouldn't you look at all that you can? So I would recommend if something doesn't even have an isobaric interference, turn it on. Yeah, I have to agree with Thomas. And one of the key reasons why this is such an attractive option is because of the speed of a quadrupole ICPMS. And if we limit the the discussion to quadrupole ICPMSs, their ability to scan through the mass range quickly is remarkable. And most of the time, even at the default settings, the result that you get, the measurement, is the result of many, many different measurements that are averaged together. So my point is this, adding extra masses, you might think that you're slowing down your analysis, and it will a little bit, but if you think about all the time you put into preparing the samples and trying to get the right number, use that speed of a quadrupole mass spec to your advantage. Measure as many masses as you possibly can because it's really one of the best ways for you to troubleshoot your analysis. Yeah, and it doesn't really take that long. I mean, if you're looking at one mass, you can get the measurement done within a a second. Exactly. Um, But we typically run the full spectrum, and it's only 20 seconds. It's really not that bad. It's very fast, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So there's no reason. Time is not an issue that should keep you from measuring as many masses as possible. Right. Yeah. I would say after that, Thomas, you mentioned collision cell earlier. That's a really good way to get around interferences is by using either a collision cell or a gas reaction cell. The technology on those has come, I think, really, really far in a short amount of time. We have, I think, a wonderful resource on Ivy Ignite that is an isotopic abundance table where you've actually given some recommendations on what different types of collision cell, reaction cell technologies you would recommend, right? Yeah, so a lot of instruments these days are, I think, pretty much all of them have a reaction cell or a collision cell. It really depends on what gas you put in it. So they traditionally come with helium only. 
I would recommend that you also look at hydrogen because it can really work well for certain elements like 40 calcium, uh, 56 iron. It works better for arsenic and selenium than just helium does. I would take a look at that. It's a little more, I mean, you have to worry your safety folks just a little bit, but it's not so bad. And since you're relying upon essentially chemistry occurring within the machine, if you're using a reaction cell approach, Thomas, and the example of hydrogen is fantastic, would you kind of recommend that you would always perhaps use some type of CRM or standard additions to validate the result because the chemistry might be a little strange and you're not quite sure you've characterized it well of what's occurring in the reaction cell? Yeah, definitely um, verify uh, with standards and and check all the masses around it. So, I mean, if you're dealing with helium, you need to worry about plus four. So I would go plus or minus four for the masses of interest to make sure the cell is doing what you think it is. Good. And I know another thing that you can do, you can also try to tune your instrument specifically to avoid interferences. We uh, recently spoke to an instrument manufacturer rep who mentioned that a lot of the instruments these days are sort of taking away the um, different sliders and things that you can adjust, which kind of frustrates us because we really enjoy messing with sliders and tuning instruments just the way we want them. But Shaylin, you mentioned earlier, you know, we do a lot of TMI samples, which for listeners who may not be familiar with our acronym stands for trace metal impurity testing. We have to tune for basically everything because you're monitoring almost every element, correct? Right. Yeah. So it's one of those things where if you are only caring about certain elements, you can tune your instrument to you know specific mass ranges, and that might help you avoid some interferences. I would say lastly, the thing that you can do is also you can calculate an interference equation, which is either not bad or but can turn a little messy pretty quickly. I know, Brian, you've had some experience calculating these things out and generating these interference equations. How quickly does it take for it to turn pretty messy? Oh, it can turn messy in an instant, Mike. (laughs) And it's a great question. I did a lot of this work uh, with ICP messes that are relatively old by today's standards, and technology has come a long way. The background work is related to a topic we mentioned earlier where you are running a lot of single element solutions that are very high purity because you want to characterize how the machine is going to behave when you put in your sample, which is a mix of different elements. It takes a long time to kind of dial it in. And then once you have, really it's specific for a given sample preparation type and a given particular type of sample. So If you have a lot of different sample preps going on in your lab or you have a really wide variety of sample types, creating interference equations to account for these issues you come across can be a challenge just because of the variability in your sample types. So very powerful, can work really well, but once you get away from that sample type that you've created it for, as you mentioned, it can get ugly pretty quick. (laughs) Yeah. And if you want some help, you know, sort of going down the rabbit hole of how you would calculate these interference equations, definitely check out Ivy Ignite. We developed a a really good learning path on there that will take you through all the steps with example worksheets and everything on how to actually calculate these equations step by step. All right. Well, we hope you found this conversation helpful. If you have any questions, please contact us at ivyignite at inorganicventures.com. Ignite membership provides you with unlimited access to video courses, downloadable resources, community forums, and so much more. Join us next week as we cover Chapter 9 in the ICP Operations Guide. 
where our team will discuss key instrument parameters. We'll help you join us then and have a fantastic week. Thanks.